Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, Purim is in the air, Adar is in the air, and, um, and I, I, I'd like to discuss that um, and, um, and also ask a, ask a question, which is, um, which is, why do we have to go through Purim uh, first in order to get to Pesach? So this is really going to be the, the, the question of the day. And, and you should just know, just um, in terms of Torah study and everything like this, that this question, uh, well, I haven't heard this question asked, actually. This is my question. But, but this type of question is asked in different contexts. So I just do a quick uh, uh, referencing just to show you that, that this type of question is, is, is asked in other contexts. For instance, when a, when a baby boy has a, a bris, that happens on the eighth day. And the commentators point out the fact that, and that the fact that it happens on the eighth day ensures that the child has to go through a Shabbos before they, they enter into the covenant. In other words, they have to experience Shabbos first, like what, what, the, what, what Shabbos is, before they can really enter into a bris. Okay, so that's, um, that's, that, that's an, another example of how you have to pass through Shabbos in order to be circumcised, right? Um, I'll give you another variation of this question. People ask the question, why does Rosh Hashanah come before Yom Kippur? Right? Rosh Hashanah is Yom Adin, the day of judgment, and then on Yom Kippur you're forgiven. So people have a very bright idea. They say, first forgive me and then judge me. <laughs> right? Because then if I've got a clean slate, then it's fantastic. Right? I'll get a good judgment. But it doesn't work that way. First comes Rosh Hashanah, and then comes Yom Kippur. Okay? So, so in other words, I'm just trying to give you a couple of examples of how this question is asked in other contexts. So our question is, why do we have to go through Purim before we can reach Pesach? And so, before we get to that, I'd like to offer uh, an answer. Before we get to that, um, let, let's just discuss the whole nature of Adar and, uh, and the greatness of Adar. So everybody knows that it says... Uh, Mishinichnas Adar Marbim Besimcha. That's what it says in the Talmud, and that means that when one enters into Adar, you have to increase in Simcha, increase in joy. So Adar is the time of joy. By the way, one of the great Torahs, I wish I could tell you who said it, but one of the great old time Torahs is that it also says in the Talmud, it says that when the month of Av, you know, Av contains Tishabav, and that's the destruction of the Holy Temples, and really sort of the headquarters of the tragedies of the Jewish people over history, when one enters into the month of Av, one is supposed to decrease in Simcha. Now, what, what could it have said? That when Av enters, you increase in sadness. But it doesn't say that. It says you decrease in Simcha. So in Adar, you increase in Simcha. In Av, you decrease in Simcha. But what's the point? You always have to be besimcha. In other words, everything always has to be with joy. Maybe it's a little more joy, maybe it's a little less joy, but one's approach to life has to be with joy. So now, we know that every several years, the way it works out, we throw in a leap month. Okay? Now, now there are people who, who um, think that the Jewish calendar is a, is a lunar calendar. And um, it, the truth is, it is mostly lunar, but, but, but uh, technically speaking, it's not a lunar calendar. It's a lunar and a solar calendar. 
And, and, and the reason why that's just philosophically so beautiful is because Torah itself is so all-embracing. Of course, our concept of time would, would have to, just intuitively speaking, embrace both the sun and the moon in terms of reference points. It has to be, just because Torah is universalistic. Um, but, but specifically speaking, we have a mitzvah that the holiday of Pesach has to happen during springtime. You see, if you look at the... Um, the Muslim calendar, which is purely lunar, the month of Ramadan can appear any time during the year, kind of floats throughout the entire year. By throwing in a leap month, what we do is we ensure that Pesach will always happen during the springtime as the Torah commands. Okay. So now, with this in mind, we understand, okay, we, we have to double one of the months. But why... We could double any of the months. Why do we double Adar? Okay, that's the question. So I heard Rabbi Salmon Trader say something very beautiful. He says, you know why? Because Adar is the month of joy, and with joy you can fix anything. Right? So, so that's why we're doubling the month of Adar, because with joy you can fix anything. And you know, the, 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 the truth is, is that you really see so many examples of this in so many different places in life, you know, like there's a, an expression in English, which is that you can catch more flies with honey than you can with vinegar, mm. you know, which means to say that with sweetness, with happiness, you know, there's so much more flow that happens in between people and everything like this. People don't want to be around other miserable people. Most people, whether they can articulate it or not, make the following formula in their mind. I'm miserable enough. Well, I have to be with you who reminds me of my own misery. My own misery, right? So, so if a person is in a state of simcha, simcha, joy is like a magnet. It attracts other people because other people are like, wow, if I can be around you, then I get lifted up too. So, so you see this in many places. And the, the depths of this teaching about Adar is that even time and space can be uplifted through joy. And so they're doubling the month of Adar um, in order to, to make sure that, that Pesach happens when it's supposed to. Now, Adar is really, the definitive aspect of Adar is Purim. So now let's just extend this one step and make the following statement. Purim is coming to make sure that Pesach arrives on time. Do you hear that? I'm going to say that one more time. And we're going to go into that in a deep way. Purim is coming to make sure that Pesach shows up on time. Okay? In the right way. Now, now, why? What, let's unpack that a little bit. What does that mean, Pesach, when we say Pesach? Pesach, the Zohar says, that all future redemptions are based on God taking us out of Egypt. Which means that when we're talking about Pesach, we're not just talking about getting out of Egypt. When we're talking about Pesach, we're talking about Mashiach coming. We're talking about the fixing of the entire world. Okay? And um, I'll just tell you something special. You know, before the Seder, for many years, you know, I, 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 I take each of my kids aside and, I, and I, I whisper in their ear before the Seder. I say to them, I say, listen, you know, just like Hashem promised to take us out of Egypt, and it took a really long time, but He did it, so too Hashem promised that He's going to bring Mashiach. 
and it's taking a really long time, but just like he kept that other promise, he's also going to keep this promise. Right? So, so we have to know the Seder is really, really about remembering that we took us, God took us out of Egypt, but also already celebrating the fact that God is going to redeem the world. We're already celebrating an event that hasn't even happened yet, okay? So Purim, again, is coming to make sure, because we're doubling the month of Adar, which ensures that Pesach happens during springtime. Purim is coming, because Purim is Adar. Purim is coming to make sure that Pesach arrives on time. So in other words, if you want to be in the consciousness of the redemption of the entire world, you have to really be there for Purim, right? So now let's return back to the, the question. Why do I have to go through Purim in order to experience Pesach? So, so I want to suggest the following, uh, the following way. You see, Pesach really is, can be broken down into two parts. Okay? Two, two main parts, I believe. The first part is, um, in other words, there were two stages to the redemption itself. The first stage was all of the wonders and miracles that God did, right? That's the first stage of Pesach. That's the first stage of freedom. The second stage of Pesach is actually leaving Egypt itself, okay? So in other words, if you want to be really free, the way the, way the Jews experienced it at that time, and by the way, not just the Jews, but... Um, all of the people in Egypt, remember, when the Jews left, you, you might have a very practical question, which is, God did all these miracles and then the Jews left? If, if I wasn't Jewish and I was Egyptian and I saw all these proofs of God before me, I would have left with the Jews. So where do you see evidence of that? And in fact, the Torah records it explicitly. You had what um, in the King James uh, English refers to as the mixed multitudes, right? In Hebrew, we call it a blessing. In, in, in Hebrew, we, we refer to them as the Erev Rav. In other words, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people who weren't Jewish left with the Jews Egypt. So just, I mean, just in, in terms of just, um, you know, if you were to read a newspaper account, the events of the Torah have to hold up with the same logic as, as that. You would expect to see that, and in fact, we do see that. Bless you. So, so let's keep on going. So why are these two stages so essential in order to be free? In order for us, you and me, to be free today. What, since, since Pesach is sort of, so to speak, the playbook or the, the blueprint of freedom, both, bless you, both, both, interperson, both, both, both inside a person, between people, between us and God, in terms of sculpting that consciousness. So, 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 so what are we to learn from this two-stage approach? That first, the plagues came, and all of the wonders, and then we left. What was the necessity of all the plagues? So, very simply, very simply, Hashem was showing that there is no other power in the world other than him. You see, people, people thought that, that the forces of nature actually had a certain innate power to them, in, independent, that they were gods in and of themselves. So the, the sort of the most famous example of this 
is, is the Nile River. Everybody knows that the Nile River would overflow and it would put its silt, its sort of like rich soil, onto the land and that would really help the, the crops grow. And so they felt like the Nile itself was this god that was giving over like abundance and produce to the Egyptian people. So that's, that's, that's an example of how they took things in the, in the natural world and they endowed them with an independent power and then approached them as gods themselves. So when God turned the Nile into blood, God showed that, wait a second, I control this. You see, there's a very radical, radical premise to Judaism. It, it's, when we talk about monotheism, monotheism in itself is a very revolutionary idea. You see, here's what most people think when different discussions about religions are, are, are held up. You know, like if, if a person goes to college and they take a course in comparative religions, right? And things like this. Like, here's what most people think. That if I say that I'm Jewish, right? I'm Jewish. What I'm saying is, my God is stronger than your God. <laughs> Right? That's not what Judaism says. Judaism says there is no other power. No other power exists. Ain od milvado. God is the only one. When we say, Shema Yisrael, Shema Lokeinu, Shema Echad, when we talk about the oneness of God, we're saying that all that exists is God. It's not that there's a stronger God and a weaker God and this one beats that one up. That's not it. There is no other power. When we say, Kadosh, 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 Hashem's fakod, melokola aretz kevodo. That God's holiness fills the entire world. We're saying that God's presence saturates all of reality. All of reality, and that's the only force that exists. So this idea that you have nature, right, or any other power as an independent force, but that God rules over that thing. So I say, oh no, I'm very religious. I believe that, that God controls nature, that God is stronger than nature. There is no nature. That's the point. There is no nature. Okay, so, so there is only God. Okay, so now let me tell you, when the plagues came, what they did was they systematically eradicated anyone's thought that nature was a power independent of God and that there was any other power in the world. Now, let me just tell you, in terms of my own life, I, I, I can tell you that this was a turning point in my understanding of, you know, of the world and, and, and in terms of just my own journey. So I share it with you because, because this is, I think, a, a, a teaching that can change your life, you know. Um, and it's from Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. And he says, he says the following, you know that the Torah doesn't repeat itself. So if you think about it, if you think about the Ten Commandments for a moment, the first commandment and the second commandment are pretty, pretty, pretty similar. Um, the first commandment is essentially that God says, I exist. Anochi means I am. I exist, right? And, and, you know, I'm the one who took you out of Egypt. Meaning to say that not only do I exist, but I'm intimately involved with all of the daily activities in your life. I'm very much there. I don't just exist. I exist and I'm right there for you. And I'm taking you out of all of your problems, okay? Then the second commandment is don't worship other gods, right? So if you already, you, you, you can say to yourself, if you think about it, you could say, well, wait a second. If, I, if God is telling me that it's just him, don't I already know that there are no other gods? 
So can't I derive the second commandment from the first commandment? Why do I need the second commandment? It's, 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 it's repetitive. So now listen to what Rabbi Nachman says. Something really, if you think about it, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's quite amazing. He says, you know, many people believe in God, meaning the one true God. Many people believe in God and they also believe in other powers. <laughs> this is a phenomenal insight into human nature. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal insight into human nature. See, I can believe in God, but I also know my boss really has power over me. Right? I can believe in God. I'm saying that would be a mistaken belief, right? That would certainly be mistaken. But I'm, I'm capable of thinking in such a crooked way, is what I'm saying. And, and most of us are. I, a person can believe in God, and they can also endow all other personalities and figures in their life, their mother-in-law, their father-in-law, their, their children, their girlfriend, their boyfriend, their wife, their husband, whatever it is, right? With all sorts of power that they don't have. So a person has to believe in God and not believe that anything else has any other power. See, but this is something that you can't just think this once. This has to be an ongoing an ongoing uh, work of the soul. And the only thing that, I, just to give you a visualization, you know in a, in a fish tank, how you have like the filter, which is constantly going, it's constantly cleaning the water, right? A person has to have that type of filter going on in their soul, where they're constantly cleansing their soul of the belief in other powers. You know, I'll tell you something, just to get intense for a moment. You know, just I'm talking about the hidden language. You know, you can think that a client, a client is God, right? It's because well, this person appears out of the blue and he wants to give you money, right? And you want to please him and you want to make sure that he's not displeased. You know, when the client ar arrives on the scene, you know, with a check with your name on it, right? You know what the hidden language is? The client is telling you, I am God. <laughs> All right? Now, I'm telling you, this is, these words... That thought we may never ever in a million years pop into the client's head. And it may never pop into your head. But I'm talking about in terms of the hidden language of the soul and the energy that's being transacted, that person is showing up as a God. And if you have your filter going at all times, you say, Hashem, I understand that you're the only power. Please God bless me that I should be a good contractor. Right? I should, be, I should be a proper employee and I should do good work for this person and that I should treat him with respect and honor and everything like that. But please, God, let me realize and never forget that, that you're the only power. Right? This is, this, is, this is what I'm saying because all these things, if you want to be for real, right? Like Reb Shlomo, like the, the biggest compliment he would give to someone is he would say, he said, that person's for real. This is like the high, this is like the gold standard of being like a real, a real Ebed Hashem, you know? If you want to be for real, you have to be like really like on top of your game, right? So, so okay. So now let's get back to the question, right? We haven't left the question yet. Why do I have to go through Purim in order to get to Pesach? So we said that the really, the, the redemption from from, from slavery in Egypt, which the Zohar says is the model for all future redemptions as well, 
So Pesach is still an ongoing relevant modality in terms of our lives right now. Okay, it's in two stages. The first stage for the blueprint, for the playbook for freedom, is the, the, all the wonders and the plagues that happen, which eradicated any thought that there was any other power in the world other than God. And then once we realize that, now we have to leave Egypt. Now we're free to leave our slavery. Okay. So now, here's the question. The question is, what about today? What about today? Because today, we're not in a place where we're experiencing these type of, these type of plagues, these type of wonders, right? These type of open miracles. All right? So... So then if you say to me that Pesach is today and the playbook for, for, for leaving Egypt is first I have to be shown that there is no power other than God, how do I experience the first step on my road to freedom if there are no plagues and open miracles? And, you know, I, just, I recommend that everyone read the last Ramban in Parsha's bow. Okay, that's just kind of like Judaism 101, that Ramban. It's a, it's a very central thought. And, and he says fantastic things in it, fantastic things. I was just reviewing it. And, but one of the things that he says is that, that, that God, if someone says, where are the miracles today, right? The Ramban says, like very sharply, he says, God did them. What, what, he's, he's, he's got to do them for you? <laughs> He already did them, <laughs> which is just fantastic if you think about it. And, and he says that so much of so much of Torah and 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 and, and the mitzvahs of observance are for us to keep fresh in our minds all the miracles that God did in terms of taking us out of Egypt. But um, so 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 that's um, that's very 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 strong, you know. Now, now let's answer this question. Let's go deeper now. Now I want to offer an answer. So again, what's the question? Why do we have to go through Purim in order to get to Pesach? So we just said that Pesach really is in two stages. First, experiencing all the miracles, which shows us that there is no power other than God, and then we can leave, right? So... We just said, and the Ramban brings, that, that these, we know that these open miracles aren't happening anymore. So how, is, how are we to experience these miracles? So the answer is Purim. The answer is Purim. Because what is Purim all about? Purim is all about how God is absolutely running every aspect of the world, even when you don't see him running every aspect of the world. And that he's not any less running every aspect of the entire world. In other words, there's no contradiction to the fact that he's doing it and you don't see him doing it. You know, Rabbi Green used to make a joke. He, he used to say, you know, the, like the world's fastest gun, you know, you know draw, right? Like a uh, gunslinger. He'd say, you want to see, see me do it? You want to see again? Right? <laughs> <laughs> So the fact that you can't see it, there's no stira, there's no contradiction to the fact that God is certainly doing it. And the story of Purim shows us how all of these events take place and God lays the foundation for all of these things. 
and is running the world. Absolutely. Right in front of our very eyes. And in fact, if you think about it, concealed miracles in their own way are even greater than revealed miracles. Because what's a revealed miracle? That means that God makes a break in the natural order. In other words, normally speaking, the sea doesn't split, right? But how is there even a sea? How is there even time and space that exists? How is there even any sort of continuity to any form of life at all? Right? The fact that the world is being created every single moment, every, every nanosecond, whatever, nanoseconds to the infinite power. And yet God maintains continuity and doesn't drop the ball in anything. Right? I mean, an ant's climb up a tree in a remote area in Tibet, right? Like God recreates the world. Does the ant miss one step? (laughs) Right? The trillions and hundreds of trillions of storylines that are in play in the world simultaneously that are all juggled and continuity continues to exist every single moment as God creates and recreates the world. I ask you, what's greater, that or the splitting of one sea at one moment? <laughs> I mean, it's obvious. It's obvious that the, 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 the continuation of the world itself, that what we would call nature or concealed miracles, are greater than a revealed miracle. Because that's just a singular break. So Purim, Purim, which is so awesome, is showing us that all these things... See, you know, um, I remember Rabbi Green saying in the, that uh, a friend of his used to, used to make a point when, whenever people would say, you know, like when, when you'd run into someone and it would be very, very surprising, right? Or you know someone that that person knows and it's like very, very surprising. A lot of times people say, small world, right? And so, so Rabbi Green's friend would point out, no, 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 it's a very big world. Just God runs it really well. <laughs> See, it's not, it's not a small world. It's a pretty vast universe. And all the more astonishing how well it's actually maintained and run, you know? I want to tell you, just in the, the realm of just happenings, you know? Just, this is something that, that, that happened to me, and I, it, it happened a year ago, so I was remembering it again. Something triggered the memory. Something happened in, I was in Israel uh, last year at around this time. And um, I, I just tell you, and um, it connects to all this. And, um, and let me just uh, reference the, uh, the Parsha for a moment, okay? So this is, uh, we just did Parsha's Mishpatim. Parsha's Mishpatim is, is, is very deep. It's got a lot of the uh, civil, civil laws, uh, business law and how we have to treat each other and, you know, if someone's, um, well, I'll get into a moment just to give you a more specific example, but, but on, on, on the one hand, though, it's very different from last week's Parsha, which is Parsha's Yisra. Parsha's Yisra, we're at Mount Sinai and it's sort of like, literally, our souls are flying out of our bodies and we have to be resuscitated, we have to be reincarnated, and then God speaks again, and our souls fly out of our bodies again, and we have to be brought back to life again. I mean, awesome revelations. We're we're hearing colors, we're seeing sounds, amazing, amazing events. 
And then all of a sudden, that's Parshas Yisro. Then all of a sudden you get to Parshas Mishpatim right afterwards. And it's saying, okay, if you've got an ox and it, it destroys someone's property and it's like real nitty gritty business law. And it's sort of like, okay, like how do we, how do we, like it feels like a bit of a come down, you know, like how do we connect these things? Okay. So interestingly, famously, Parshas Mishpatim begins with the letter Vav. Okay, and, and Vav is something that connects. All right, Vav is a, as a prefix in Hebrew means and, right? So um, this, and then you put a Vav in front of the next word, and that. So, so all the rabbis are coming to say that basically, I saw this specifically in the name of the Chudush Arim, the, the first Gerarebi, that, that you have to understand that all this civil law is coming from the exact divine place as all the souls flying out of the body place, right? In other words, everything, including all of the, all of the mitzvot of interpersonal dealings are coming from an equally divine place. They all have their same source from heaven. And with that, I'm sure I'm not the first to say this, but no one told me, so... With that, let's approach this letter Vav in a different context, in, in the context of the Yudke Vavke. So we know in terms of the holiest name of God, right? And whenever we analyze the name, I always recommend us going from top to bottom like a ladder. You've got like Yud at the top, that's the highest reaches, right? And then He, and then underneath that Vav, and then the bottom He. So all the Rebbes, everyone agrees that the bottom He stands for this world. And then you have the letter Vav, which is connecting you to the higher realms, right? So in other words, Parshas Mishpatim begins with the letter Vav, right? To show you that everything happening in Parshas Mishpatim, all the civil war laws, which connect to this world, to the bottom hay, are connected, like in the name of Hashem, by the Vav, to their ultimate place, which is Shemayim, which is the highest reaches of heaven. Okay, so that's what that Vav is doing there. It's telling you that everything is emanating from above. And with that in mind, I want to go deeper. I want to suggest a flow between the Parshas of Parshas Yisra, which is again all the divine pyrotechnics of the revelation at Mount Sinai, to Parshas Mishpatim, which is all of the laws, right? And that's maybe, I don't know if it's the most mitzvah-packed Parsha in terms of number of commandments in the whole Torah, but it's, if it's not number one, it's probably number two. So you've got just this amazing amalgam of mitzvahs, and then you've got Parsha's Truma. Parsha's Truma is already the building of the Beis HaMikdash. Okay, so I'd like to suggest that you see the same flow between Parsha's Yisro, Parsha's Mishpatim, and Parsha's Truma. In other words, you see there our narrative, our mystical narrative of the creation of the world. And let me, let me tell you how that works, okay? So we always talk about it, but, but just to say it again, the Talmud says that the Torah existed 974 generations before the world was created. So what does that mean, that the Torah existed before the world was created? So it, it doesn't mean that there was a Torah scroll floating up in outer space, right? It doesn't mean that. It means that God had a will for the world, a desire for the world before he created the world. That was the Torah 
before the world was before the world was created. It was God's intention for the world. So just to make it real in terms of our life, right? If we're going to go on a vacation, say, right? Normally speaking, we plan for the vacation. We know where we're going before we show up at the airport, right? You don't just kind of like, or most people don't just show up at the airport and go, you know, maybe I'll go to Alaska or maybe I'll go to Hawaii, right? It doesn't usually work like that, you know? You know where you're going to go. You've booked your flight. You've packed for cold weather or warm weather. So you have a plan in place before you do the deed itself. So before God did the deed itself, the creation of the world, he had a plan for the world itself. That plan for the world was the Torah as it existed before the world was created. Now listen to this. This is like very intense. God then took his plan for the world, his desire for the world, right? And that's the Torah as it existed before the world was created. And he shaped that energy into the world itself. That's what we mean when we say that the Torah is the fabric of reality. That's what we mean when we say that the mitzvot are the building blocks of creation. Because the world is literally made out of the Torah. God took his will and formed his will into a material dimension, which is where we are right now. That's why people say, no, we don't have an arm in order to do the mitzvah of tefillin, right? Or rather, we don't have, um, we, how does it go? We don't, have, um, we don't have the mitzvah of tefillin to put on our arm. We have an arm in order to do the mitzvah of tefillin. So the entire physical world is corresponding and is a mate, so to speak, in order to converge with the will of God. Okay. So now with this in mind, let's revisit the order of Parshiot and you'll see how this plays out. What is the Beis HaMikdash? That's Parshas Truma. Remember, we're talking about the flow. Parshas Yisro into Parshas Mishpatim into Parshas Truma. What is Parshas Truma? It's, it's the building of the, the Beis HaMikdash, the Mishkan. That is so that God should have a dwelling place in the physical realm. Right? In other words, Truma is this world. Okay? That's Parshas Truma. Because Parshas Truma is the Beis HaMikdash. What is this world made out of? This world is made out of Beis HaMikdash. How do we know this? Because it says, this is the Big Bang Theory that we've had for thousands of years. That God created the world. He took one point of materiality, right? And in the language of the rabbis, a, the size of a mustard seed. Okay, small. And where was that from? It's so great. You've got to love Torah. Torah doesn't just tell you he took a small point of something. It tells you what it was and where it was from. The foundation stone of the Beis HaMikdash. He took the tiniest piece of the foundation stone of the Beis HaMikdash and he blew it up until it expanded and created the entire physical universe. Do you know what that means? That means that the entire universe is made out of the DNA of the Beis HaMikdash. You know what it means when you wash your hands in the morning after you get out of bed? Everyone should, I hope, wash their hands, okay? Not with soap and water, right? Got a cup full of water, maybe you keep it by your bed next to a bowl, right? Maybe it's ready for you by your sink. 
and you wash your right hand and then your left hand, your right hand, your left hand, your right hand, your left hand. Okay, you're ready to start the day. So there's one way of understanding that from one of the great Rishonim. I always forget if it's the Rashbam. I think it's the Rashbam. But uh, maybe it's the Rashba. I'm not sure. It's one of his, in one of his tshuvas. He says, you know, you know why? You know why you're washing your hands in the morning? Because before a Kohen went into the Beis HaMikdash to do the service, he washed his hands. And so this whole world is like one big Beis HaMikdash. So, and all of us are serving in this world, which makes us all on some level like Kahanim, serving in the Beis HaMikdash. So why are we washing our hands this mor- every morning? Because we're entering into this great avoda of being alive. But here you see that from the fact that God created the entire physical universe from the DNA, so to speak, the single point of the foundation of the Beis HaMikdash, that the entire world has the DNA of the Beis HaMikdash. So this is not just a nice thought. There's, a, there's an actual reality to this, that the whole world is the Beis HaMikdash. So that's Parsha's truma. So, so we're working backwards now. So we have the, the creation of the physical universe. So what's Parshas Mishpatim? That's all of the Torah that God shaped the world. We're going backwards now. That God shaped the world out of, right? Because Parshas Mishpatim is all the mitzvahs, right? And then you go back a step. Parshas Yisro, right? Which begins with the letter Yud. That's Hashem, right? That stands for Hashem right at the beginning, the beginning before the beginning. Beyond, 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 beyond. Right? The architect of everything, you know? That's all the miracles. That's all the spiritual realms already. That's where it says in Parshas Yisro, heaven came down to earth. Okay, so there you see Parshas Yisro, Mishpatim, Truma. There you see the sort of Kabbalistic narrative of the entire creation of the universe. So, so let's get back to Purim now. So hopefully we understand a little bit better. Why are we going through Purim in order to get to Pesach? Because remember, Pesach exists in two parts. First, there's all the miracles that we experience. Then there's the leaving of Egypt. So how do we experience all these miracles? God already did them and told us to remember them. They're still in the air. Ah, but then God gives us this amazing privilege of experiencing the fact that God hasn't stopped doing miracles at all or orchestrating the world at all and that we have to blow our minds absolutely over the fact that there is no other power and God is showing us in a completely different way. There he showed us in a revealed way. Here he's showing us in a completely concealed way that he's absolutely running openly everything. So when we go through Purim, we realize there is no other power than God. And now we're ready for Pesach again. (laughs) Now, let's take it another step further, okay? And this is, this to me just never stops amazing me. And it's written actually in Megillus Esther itself, you know, in black and white. You can see it with your own eyes. So everybody knows that the climax of the, of the, of the story um, in, in the Megillah is there's a wine feast and, um, you know, Esther turns to 
Morda, I'm sorry, Esther turns to, um, already ready for a, for Esther turns to Haman and mm-hmm. says, that's the guy who's trying to kill me and all my people. And then basically he gets hung on the spot. All right. I mean, the, within moments he's being, there's a hood on his head and he's being taken to be executed. So what day did that happen on? And like I say, you can look at it. It's right. It's it's written in in the in the in the Megillah itself. It's not any commentary. It's not any medrash. It's right there in the Megillah itself. I wanted to look it up before before we started, so I could give you the exact pasuk, but I didn't have time. But I'm telling you, you know what day it happened on? It happened on Passover. <laughs> happened on Pesach. Purim happens on Pesach. So now you see this unbelievable convergence between open miracles and hidden miracles and how God is telling you everything is a miracle. Everything is testimony to to God's oneness. To the fact that there is no other power. Purim. Purim happens on Pesach. What did we say earlier? We said, Purim is making sure that Pesach shows up on time. (laughs) You see, once your consciousness is in this place that every single thing is from God, you know what that means then? That means that you have to treasure every single thing. Because if every single thing is from God, that means that this moment that God is giving you right now is directly from God with total intention and total supervision. It's a completely different way of going through life. You know, you run into someone in Ralph's, right, in the supermarket, and it's like, oh, hey, wow, look at this, you know. Every single thing, right? You can't stop blowing your mind over every single thing. And you go through life completely differently. So with this in mind, I want to tell you something that um, Rabbi Tzvi Freeman said that really touched me very deeply. So he asked a question, but it follows from what we've been talking about. He was approaching it from a different angle, but it follows off of what we were talking about. So then why is it so hard so often? And why do we go through so much pain so often? So he said that there's two categories of everything that happens. He says there's good and there's very good. Right? Now, if I were to ask you which category would the pain fall into, I'll tell you how I would have answered. I would have said the good. And then the stuff that's openly revealed, that would be the very good. By the way, you know, Rabbi Freeman, it, has, uh, it was concealing a lot of learning behind what he was saying. He was putting it in very easy terms. But you should know that, that what he was saying has a lot of depth to it. Because on the, uh, when it talks about, on the sixth day, it says God created, uh, 
I forgot what he created, but it said, and God said, called it Tov Ma'od, which means very good. And you know what the rabbis explain Tov Ma'od means? Death. Okay, so, so the, this idea, he says, no, good is that which is openly revealed. Very good is that which is not openly revealed. And you see that already there's a lot of learning behind that, okay? So, so he gave a mushal, a an example that made it so crystal clear for me anyway. He said, imagine someone gets a promotion. And when you've got a promotion, that can be a very difficult situation in your life. You think on the one hand, oh, I've got a promotion. Now everyone is coming to uh, honor me and, you know, give me more money and everything like this. But... Why are you making more money in the higher position? You know why? Because they're giving you a lot more work and a lot more pressure. <laughs> they're not just giving you money for no reason. There's a reason why they're giving you more money. A lot more work and a lot more pressure. And it's uncomfortable when you have a higher position in life. Right? People think, oh, it's all fun and games, right? No, it's not. It's a lot of pressure. And so, so, so when we experience difficulties in our life, and it's in the category of very good, what he's saying is that Hashem is giving us this unbelievable opportunity. Through this difficulty, he's raising us up to this new place where we're able to address problems that we weren't able to address in our previous state. We're able to address and God willing fix issues that we weren't able to address or fix in our previous state. And that's called very good. Because think about it. If you have like, I don't know, if you have like some bad credit problem or something like that, and you're given the opportunity to fix that and get it out of the way, even though it may have been difficult, but then you succeed and you get it off your record, what would you call that? I'd call that very good. I'd call that excellent, right? Got it out of the way. That was an issue. It's no longer an issue. Was it challenging? It was challenging. You got it out of the way. Got it out of the way. Very good. So, so now returning back to this idea that everything is a wonder. Certainly, any circumstance that we're going through in our own life that's difficult is not evidence of being abandoned by God or punished by God but rather God is manifesting his presence in a much more tangible way, giving us an opportunity to fix something. This is, this is, this is Torah. This is Judaism. This is reality. That's what's going on. You see, our souls on some level, our brains, our bodies certainly, on some level have been brainwashed by, by the creature comforts of Western civilization. And we've come to associate anything uncomfortable or anything potentially painful with that which is bad and must be avoided. Right? And people will go to every length not to experience that level of discomfort in terms of every form of addictive behavior in order to escape that pain instead of confronting it. But if they understood that this level of uncomfortableness is a promotion 
is called very good, is called an opportunity to address and to fix, then we would view life differently. Right? That there's only good and very good. So, so this is the road, this is the road to freedom. This is the road to freedom. The first step is understanding that there is no other power than God. The second step is understanding that God is running our lives with great, great intimacy. You know, I'll tell you just on a personal level that um, the the turning point in terms of, I, I would say, my development as a, you know, soul, I guess, was when I was eight years old, I, we had a, I lived in a big building in New York City, and there was only one Torah observant family in the entire building. It was a big building, a lot of families. And we were friendly with them, and she gave my older brother a subscription to the Chabad children's magazine, right? And at that time, this was during like the 70s, whatever, it was... It was a very low-tech pamphlet. I mean, really about as low-tech as you can get. Like, I remember, like, there was a... Every issue, there would be, like, a a nature page with, like, a black-and-white, out-of-focus photograph of an owl or something like this, you know what I mean? Like, super low-tech, you know? But in every single issue, there would be a Hasidic story. And I remember I was eight years old, and I was reading these Hasidic stories... And I can tell you that it became the foundation of my, my understanding of, of God. You know? And I'll tell you, every Hasidic story is different, but every Hasidic story is also the same. And what I mean to say by that is, they all make three points, basically. There's a God, He loves you, and He's intimately involved in every aspect of your life. Right? Because He's good. And when I read that, I was like, yeah, this is what it is. This is what it is. And um, I remember, uh, so when I was 14, that was when I was eight. When I was 14, I started going across the street to Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach's shul. And I heard him saying over Hasidic stories. And that just opened up my soul and created that, that bond between me and him. You know, so, so... So this is, this is the truth. This is why somehow a story can just uh, communicate depths that, that, um, that other things can't, can't for some reason. And um, they say that Megillus Esther, there's a, there's a custom actually that you fold the scroll into thirds and that it should be read like a letter. And people say like a love letter, <laughs> you know? That the whole thing is just one long love letter. And uh, I'll just uh, finish off by just telling you this one last thing, just because Rabbi Freeman had reminded me of it. He says, you know something? In terms of what kind of relationship we have with God, or you have, I have, whatever it is, with God, you know who determines that? You determine that. We determine that. And um, I remember a teaching I heard from uh, someone at Isha Torah many years ago. Uh, actually, it was Mati Berger, I think. And he said something very great. He said, 
he said that in a love relationship or perhaps a friendship or something like that, do you know who determines the level of the relationship? The one who is less involved. So let me, let me, um, so he gave an example. He says, if, if someone calls you every single day, right? But you only return their call, say, once a month, you don't have an everyday relationship. You have a once a month relationship, right? Because the one who determines the actual relationship is the one who's less involved, right? So with this in mind, you see something absolutely amazing about us and God. Every single moment, God is bringing us into existence, literally. Every breath we take, God is keeping us alive and like encouraging us and providing our brains with oxygen and our our blood with oxygen and keeping our blood circulating constantly. So how close is God? God can't be any closer. God literally has put a piece of himself inside of you, your very soul, right? The relationship can't be any closer. So then, this sets up a very big kind of moment, which is, who then gets to determine what the nature of the relationship is? The one who's less involved, which means us. Which means, to what extent do I recognize and call out to God? Or let me put it in an even better way, I think. Which is that the phone is constantly ringing. (laughs) At any moment, it's up to you whether you want to pick up the phone, right? In other words, it's not that you're calling him, he's already calling you. (laughs) You say, oh, I, I, I feel so distant from God. God is so far away. Do you realize you can't even utter those words or think those thoughts unless God is ultimately close to you? Because you wouldn't even exist and be capable of having those thoughts or those words? So God is reaching out 24-7, 24-7, 24-7. And the question it just is, is that you say, I'm feeling very far away. You have to understand that's the Yetzirah. That's 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 fantasy. Right? So at any moment you pick up the phone, I, you know, have you, have you ever like dreaded like seeing someone because you think, oh, maybe they're, oh, they're going to, I'm late or, or oh, I was supposed to do that. I didn't do that. And you're feeling so horrible. Like you, you just know, or you're, you're coming home and, and, and you forgot something for your wife or your husband or whatever it is. And you're expecting like an angry face or some tension. And then all of a sudden you open up the door and it's like, there's a big smile. <laughs> Or you meet the person and the person doesn't even care. It was all in your head and there's like a big smile. You know how good that you feel, right? So so you get to determine the relationship. You get to pick up the phone. Now that doesn't mean that I can be like a, a brat and say, oh, God loves me anyway, right? So I can be a brat to whoever I want because God loves me and, and I get to be a brat and, and bask in God's love constantly. <laughs> well, you got to be a mensch, but we're assuming that you're being a mensch. We're assuming that you're doing your best. Okay? So, so never fear. Never, never be afraid that you're in this place of, of distance or isolation or whatever it is. Always remember that the fact that you're even able to have the thought that I'm in a place of isolation or distance means that you're not. 
Because how could you have the thought unless God, out of love, is keeping you alive at that moment? You understand? Okay, have a great week. Yeah. <laughs>